You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. We're recording from the Waterville Senior Center, and my guest is Chuck Veet. Chuck is a good friend of the Roundtable, is presented at our meetings many times, mm-hmm. and the author of many books. And today he's here to talk to us about natural genius Brutus de Villois and the U.S. Navy's first submarine. Chuck, thank you very much for oh, joining me. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Nick. Uh, so, Chuck, before we get into Villois, who's this very fascinating and mysterious Frenchman, French in- inventor, um, you're a naval historian, and you know you know naval history. I think you've been studying it how long now? Uh, About 20 years. 20 years, yeah. uh, and you get your hands dirty with experiments. And um, uh, talk a little bit about the submarine, the history of the submarine. It, it didn't just appear in the 19th century. There were early versions, I think you even say 1620 is really the first submarine. Can you talk a little bit about that? Technically, yes. If you look at submarine histories, some can claim that Alexander the Great supposedly went down to the bottom of the Red Sea to survey his kingdom. Uh, No proof of that. There are questions as to when a diving bell becomes a submarine. And the criteria that define a submarine are that it can go on the z-axis up and down and also has the ability to move on the x and y-axis, left and right, forward, backwards. And also that it has a way to sustain an atmosphere for the crew. Technically, Cornelius Van Drabel in 1620 demonstrates a submarine in the Thames River. Uh, we have no necessary proof of that. We don't have anything to disprove it. We don't believe that King James actually went down, which you know, Van Drabel claimed, but he had a, a leather-encased rowboat. And while rowboat sounds primitive, at that point in time, that's the only motive power, human muscle and, and oars. There are no propellers or anything like that. And the most mysterious thing is, in the diagrams we have of his boat, the sketches, there's something called a chemical liquor or elixir. Totally mysterious, but somehow he refreshed the crew's atmosphere with that. So he has technically the first submarine. The research really picks up, not so much with Turtle per se, but not too long after. Uh, The Napoleonic Wars see a surge in submarine research, mostly on the part of the French. Of course, they're fighting a war. Later on, there are theories that they got bitten by the submarine bug and maybe saw it as a way to get Napoleon out of exile. But then once he passes away, they just keep on churning out subs every couple of years. I, I get the impression that in those decades, it was sort of like back in the days whenever we were first starting to send space shuttles up in, into the atmosphere, that most of us hadn't seen one. We'd all heard of one. We might have seen pictures of one. A few lucky people had been up close and watched the launch, things like that. So they're exotic and rare but not unknown. Right. What were some of the, I mean, some of them are probably obvious, but some of them aren't. What are some of the problems that are sort of, um, that that inventors are running into? Uh, No, Villois certainly faced some of them. What's so hard about making a submarine be a submarine? (laughs) Biggest problem for everybody is air supply. Yep. I know uh, oars were, were favored for quite a while, and they got reasonably complex. Villois' first sub in 1832 actually has the folding oars that would later characterize his uh, his next boat in 1859. But air supply is the Achilles heel of all the subs. If you can't go down and stay down for a while, what's the point? You must just go down and hold your breath if that's as long as you can stay. And it got to be a real issue. Uh, around 1811, there was a French submarine that was supposedly 
very well made, very effective, called, pardon my bad French here, Nautilet. Okay. And the problem was that in Nautilet, they had decided that the best way to get air was to run a stout rubber hose out behind the boat of, you know, dozens and dozens of feet with a float on the end to keep it above the surface. And they would just pump air down. You can't just suck air down a tube like you have to pump it. The problem was if for some reason Nautilet went down two more feet than the length of the hose, and it did once, oh, right, <laughs> you yeah. start to fill the boat with water. Sure. So you have to come back up very, very quickly. The chemical elixir may have been a solution to that. And all that might have been is something as simple as a bucket of lime that you spritz water on or spray water over with a bellows. That's why I call it the bucket and bellows approach. When you wet any sort of lime like that, like when you slake your thirst, it's called slaked lime. You've, you've watered it. It activates it, and it will grab the CO2 molecule. It doesn't split it like a modern air scrubber, but it keeps the poisonous C, the carbon away from your lungs. There's a lot more gases in, quote-unquote, air that we need to breathe. So while it won't refresh it and return it to you, it's taking out the poison element. And that could, that could almost double the time a sub could stay down. That technique, the earliest evidence I found of it was 1808 in a farmer's guidebook, if you will about how to make sure there's no CO2 in a well. You basically do this again and again with a bucket of lime, spritz water on it, and then bring it up. And when you can lay over another bucket with a candle in it that stays lit, you know you've done your job. There's no more CO2. So that technique wasn't as astounding as you thought sure. it was when Villa has his air scrubber years. per yeah. se. Yeah, it was very, very well known. It was just terribly common. But yeah, that's the Achilles heel of all these subs. They also don't understand really that crush depth could reduce them to the size of a, of a can of Coke. Uh, they understand that pressure is can be gauged. They have gauges to understand that. They don't realize that if they go deep enough, it can kill you. In 1832, Villawal was asked after his demonstration off Nance, how deep do you think you can go? And he quite boldly says, oh, I think 600 feet before the light gives out. You can just hear crumble, crumble, crumble. You know? Right, right. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and you touched on it with the oars. Literally, uh, movement's a big problem. I mean, these, they're not moving very fast. And it literally it's oars poking out of the side. I mean, they're watertight, but they're poking out of the side of these vessels. Exactly. They're, watertight is a guideline. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> they, they pass through what are called stuffing boxes, which are small holes in the side of the boat, and you jam them full of you know, tar-impregnated oak. It's called oakum. And okay. it's the stuff they would wedge between the, the planks in the hull of a ship. Uh, Old Ironsides in Boston has oakum between the planks. All sailing ships did. And that slowed down to a... a, a endurable degree the amount of water that would come in you still had to pump it out occasionally but yeah oars are the only way to go and one thing to bear in mind is we think submarine nowadays and we think a lot of that x y motion all around at this point in time a lot of subs are more salvage submarines they're not really they're trying to apply them to the military but again that motion on the x y is is an issue most of these subs are glorified diving bells that we accord the name submarine to because they can move when they have to x mm -hmm. and y uh, and they meet the other criteria. But usually, even in Villawa's demonstrations in 1859 and 60, his submarine is towed to yes. the dive site. Then it goes down. Now, to me, that's basically an elevator. It, it's a diving bell that's been stretched. He right. can deploy men. It does all the things a diving bell could do, plus a little more. But they didn't want to have to row it for miles and miles and miles. And that's an issue when the Civil War begins. Because now you need to make an attack from underwater at a distance. Sure. So, yeah, motion, motion is an issue that they're slowly coming to terms with. Uh, one of the most famous submarine inventors, of, uh, Dr. Payern in France, had a boat called Auguste, which was painted bright red, so you could, you could not mistake it for anything else. And it would literally be towed over the spot where his men were supposed to pry rocks loose from the harbor of Cherbourg. That's the assignment he has. And they would just 
open the ballast tanks and sink straight down. Now his boat had a gigantic, like I would estimate about four by four or five by five hatch in the bottom. And they would open that. And that's okay because he pressurized the inside of the boat to where it's greater, the air pressure is greater than the water pressure. And then they would hover about three feet off the bottom achieving what's called neutral buoyancy. They weigh mm -hmm. as much as the water around them and they won't go anywhere. His men would then stand on the ocean floor and use crowbars, pry bars, to loosen the rocks. This is a big advantage because his men aren't fighting against the, the density of the water, they're working in the air. And so whenever they wanted to move the boat, they would literally up the small anchors and because it's neutral buoyancy in effect, it weighs nothing, the crew would grab the edges of the hatch and walk the boat forward a couple feet to the next rock wow. and then re-anchor. So there's different ways to get around motion, but they're not meant to go very far at this point. Sure. Military applications get to be a challenge. Right, and we'll see <clears throat> that soon. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Brutus de Villois, the, the French inventor who um, <clears throat> eventually builds the alligator, which is the, the title of your book, the first U.S. Navy submarine. Uh, he's born in France. Uh, there's a lot of gaps in terms of, uh, you know, his life and information must have been a bit of a challenge. Um, can you talk a little bit about his early life? He's born in a lucky year in 1794 because by the time he comes of military age, Napoleon has been exiled for a year or two. So he is spared throughout his childhood, you know, the French Revolution. Uh, he's the son of a printer. Uh, this is evidenced uh, not just from his birth records, but the fact that you know one of his inventions he gets an award for is a cylindrical lithographic press. Um, again, there are some gaps there. His entire childhood is a blank. <clears throat> it's a blank really until he gets his first brevet or, or patent claim in about 1822 or so for a musical instrument. And we often wonder for a long time, so he's, he's of an age you expect him to be married and have children. And the reason why children were so important is we always wonder what happened to de Villois' papers. You know, supposedly there are, are hints that he gave them to his lawyer. And so uh, one of our researchers, Alice Smith, uh, just did yeoman work trying to find descendants of everybody to track down who might have the box of papers in the attic. We never did find anybody. And probably about six months before I was ready to publish, and I thought, okay, the book is done, you know, I'm just going to read it one more time. I thought, let's go check the internet again, because things change fast. Mm -hmm. And someone over in France decided, let's digitize some of these old, dusty records, and up pops his son. His oh, son wow. born in 1822. And mm -hmm. the only reason his son pops up is that he was born illegitimate, gave the name of his mother, but Villawan never married her. And he wants now his father to recognize him so he can get married in the Catholic Church. We thought, bingo, you know, hold the presses. We found a descendant. Well, my wife did four genealogy on him. His wife would have been Brutus's, you know, uh, daughter-in-law. She passes soon after the birth of their second daughter. One daughter ends up right after that in an insane asylum, and the other dies not too long after that with no issue. So nowhere to go. But he did, he did father uh, a child and just never married or anything like that. Uh, he... He has very, uh, quite a bit of success in the, probably from the time he enters the, the national eye with the invention of his fish boat, or bateau poisson. Again, sorry for the French. <laughs> and that's about 1832. Mm -hmm. He may have worked under a fellow named De Cassera, who, even though he built his first boat right then and there in 1832 or 33, was seen as the submarine expert in France. He'd been an advocate of this for years. And again, we have a gap in the record there. But de Villois' first boat bears a lot of the characteristics that De Cassera said what we needed in a sub and also was similar to something that Dicasera built not long after that. So that's a possibility and again we don't claim it, just you present it as a possibility. After that Villois is sort of all over the map. He's a renaissance man. He's a civil engineer uh, and a, you know, a little bit of bluster here but he would say that I'm a civil engineer of the first order, first class engineer and he gets a number of patents and brevets and awards 
Uh, he's doing everything from uh, ways to allow trains to go up and down hills, which is more of a problem than they weren't as powerful as they sure. are now. He had uh, you know, the cylindrical press. He has a rotary pump uh, the, the, all over the place, a dozen different inventions like that. And the high point of his career was probably when he gets sent to Greece by the French government. Now, France and England have just helped throw the Turks out of Greece. The price that the Greeks are paying is that France and England are going to repay themselves by taking over all the industry in Greece. And it's going to be run by factors from those countries. They even install a European monarch on the throne who tries to take care of the Greek people, but still all the profits are going home. Villawa is tasked as one of the two co-directors of the Royal Sugar Refinery uh, near Thermopylae. Couturgeon, I think, is the name. Greek is worse than French. And... Uh, <laughs> While he's over there, about a year later, he may have been the engineer, because it's just as the engineer at the plant, discovered that a small plant that grows freely and is free to harvest on the hills of Greece, asphodel, has six times the saccharine content of beetroot, which is what they were using to make sugar. This revolutionizes the industry and, of course, you know, makes the sugar refinery much more profitable. At that time, Villawa also tries to introduce photography right. into Greece. The trouble is the Greeks, except for the royalty, are dead flat broke. Four. So they can't afford photographs. You know, again, we thought we can get something from this, a photograph by him. Uh, he writes a small book then, uh, analyzing the geometry of some of the temples on the Parthenon, publishes that, comes home, writes up a report on Greece for the King of France, uh, and then at this, at this point in time, just as an aside, there is a long, enduring story that's been there it's so accepted, people think it's true, that Villawa taught Jules Verne. Right. That's a nice to have, mm -hmm. but in the years that Jules Verne was at school in Nantes, unless it was the world's first and longest correspondence course, that's when Villawa was in Greece. He could not have taught Jules Verne. Jules Verne would have heard of him. He may even have met him later in, but he could not have taught him at all. He's in Greece the whole time. Things go sour for Villawa in the 1840s. He is tasked uh, to go over to the U.S., to Philadelphia, which has a large French enclave, and he's working for the DeRue family, and he's supposed to develop a big chunk of central Pennsylvania, clearing of the trees, building roads, building uh, coal mines and refineries, things like that, and he falls flat on his face. We're not sure whose money got lost, his or the DeRue's. He is pretty much hounded out of the country by lawsuits. Some of those pursue him to France. He stays a couple years and uh, comes back in. He's still inventing at this time. Sure. He invents a musical instrument that yep. they said was very haunting to listen to. It was, it was too complex to play is why you don't see it nowadays, a harmonium. He invents a rangefinder, another one of his inventions that with our war coming probably could have been used a lot in the service. The government examined it, and I don't know if it was a complexity design or what, but they, they declined to accept it. Was he doesn't phrase. have a lot of success <clears throat> with his inventions, at least in terms of uh, the, <coughs> the rangefinder was, like you said, a very, uh, yeah. it could be very useful. Um, and he, like you said, he tries to introduce photography to the Greeks, but uh, he, he's not very, he's not a good marketer. You know, he might be, he might be, uh, a great inventor, but none of this stuff he's able to ever make any money off of. The sugar is the thing that he probably gets wealthy you on. You know the old expression, the gods give and the gods take away? Right. They, they gave him the ability to come up with these wonderful ideas yep. that were well accepted and then took away all business sense whatsoever. Yes. Yep. He, he doesn't even seem motivated really to want to make a franc from this stuff. Marketing isn't his thing. He just wants to go on to the next invention. And I, I, the impression I get because uh, we have no writings of his per se describing himself, is that he was just hungry to discover new things. He was an engineer of the first class. It's not quite so pompous a boast as it sounded because he's successful in every little field that he attempts, mm -hmm. except for business. Right. He, he doesn't try to market stuff, and when he does, it just, like the Daru 
you know, area of Pennsylvania, he falls flat on his face. And some of the snippets you get later when he's working on the alligator of his personality are great, you know, sort of. And we'll talk a little. I mean, we could we could skip ahead a little bit, but he doesn't work well with others who aren't <laughs> of the creative, uh, no. uh, you know, the creative type. Uh, in other words, leave the thinking to me and just give me what I ask for. Exactly. Kind of. Exactly. Now, it, it, related to that. His first summary in 1832, we believe, was actually built at a major foundry in France, right. where Villois was probably already working because it is that factory, that foundry, that sends him to Greece. And the connection is that they made machinery for the refinement of sugar beet into sugar. So he's already working there, and they build his first submarine. I assume from that that, of course, there's nobody else to kibitz on a submarine. No one's built one in France like this before, so there's no questions asked. He evidently is allowed to tell them, do this, do that, and we'll have a submarine in the end. Um, when it comes time to, to work with others in Philadelphia on his first or second boat, if you will, the salvage sub, no, there are a lot of problems. And his backers learn very quickly that this guy will just keep on tweaking forever, and we will never see this boat perfected in his eyes and get a dime back from it. And that becomes a very, very big problem with the later submarines in the course of the rebellion. Yeah. Uh, and just quickly back to the Le Bateau Poisson. I, I, I slaughtered that word too. Uh, but the fish boat, uh, 1832 in France, he demonstrates it for the French Navy, right? And they're less than impressed with... Uh, they, they come away with not a damning report, but a report that says, well, it... it does everything he says up to a point. Right. We need it to go beyond that yeah, point. Right. We're not sure it can do, you know, it can't be a combat submarine. It can't go as far as he claims. There was no way to get men out and board a ship or attack. You know, Villa was saying, I, I can do all these things. All he does is go on the bottom for 15 or 20 minutes, scoop up some seashells, come back and say, voila, look what I got. Okay, how do you deploy a bomb that way? Or how right. do you ram yeah. an enemy ship or, you know, send borders on? And Villa promises him everything, but of course, they're not interested in something like that. It, it looks to be a dead end or, you know, this is going to cost them a lot of money and probably no return on it. Right. So, right. so uh, going to 1857 or 58, the salvage boat that he mm -hmm. builds, there's a, so this is the great thing about your book. I mean, here, you know, we start off in, uh, in, in post-revolution France and, and now we're about to talk about the gold rush a little bit, but there, <laughs> you know, so the Central America is a ship um, I think it originates in, in Panama, then goes to Havana. There's a lot of gold on it, uh, uh, millions uh, yeah. in, in modern uh, value, and it shipwrecks somewhere um, they thought they knew around about and that it was in shallow water. Mm -hmm. So there's this big effort, and investors get involved and say, well, we can get this ship and we can get the gold, and Villawa is called in. Um, yeah. what, what happens next? <laughs> business happens next. <laughs> the poor guy. Yeah, it, it's we lose track of just how much gold was coming east. All those 49ers, they're still hard at work, and they are shipping gold home literally by the shiploads down on the west coast to the Isthmus of Panama, over the railroads, and back onto ships to come north. There is so much gold that when they parade it through the streets, literally, and the, the Central America was a standard ship with like $57 million in period money, which is like 500 or 600 million nowadays, they would actually load it in wheelbarrows and wagons and parade it through the streets to the banks. And the banks were saying, we need people to borrow more money. Our 
our safes are full, we, our vaults are full, we can't hold any more gold, please borrow money. That's how much gold we have at the time. So when the Central America goes down, uh, there are divers that offer to go do it. They could never reach it. The deepest dive at the time was about 150 feet. We now know this was much, much deeper. Right. Villawa thought it was around that range to a couple hundred feet. I can do it. I can build a sub. And they said, you know, go ahead and do it if you want. You can get the gold. We'll take a percentage back, things like that. And, again, this this is when he runs into a problem because he gets a variety of gentlemen of means, lawyers, uh, judges, a lot of Frenchmen in the you know, French enclave in Philadelphia to back him. The trouble is the project begins to languish at, at – I think it's Brush Hill is where the first foundry was. And another fellow, a Judge Witt, comes in and, and gets it moving again and moves it to Nephi and Levy down on the, the, the river. And they do finally finish a sub about 1859 or so and demonstrate it. It malfunctions both times they try to demonstrate it, but we do know that some things on it work. For instance, he has trouble with some of the ballast tanks. He can't get a thing to totally submerge, but he manages to submerge the diver's hatch. And we know he has a way to pressurize the boat and deploy a diver because the whole crew gets inside in, in front of the public, dives the boat as, you know, as much as they can, and then a diver or two gets out and waves to the crowd and goes back in the boat and is in it when it returns to the surface. So he, he has that going for him. But it never goes to sea to find it. The war interrupts it. I don't think the Central America was discovered until like the last decade. And all the gold is, is you know, it was still there laying on the seafloor oh, waiting wow. to be found. Yeah. I think 1988, you said in your book. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was not 200 feet deep. It was closer to 700 feet yes, deep. Yes, it was yeah. quite deep. Yeah. The, the submarine would have been crushed. Right, you know? right. So, um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the idea of the submarine and the idea of how wars were fought back in the 19th century. Um, sort of a sneak attack was not something that was uh, uh, good etiquette, uh, for lack of a better term, when, you, when, when fighting war. And so I think generally, un, uh, until there was a war, there wasn't a lot put of lot lot of effort put into making submarines. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's that's true. It, it, submarines were a, a major threat to the hierarchy. Let's say that you know, this is before Annapolis in the 30s and all that. But let's say that I've been a midshipman and uh, I've I've worked my way up over the years to become a lieutenant and a captain and all that. And finally, I'm I'm put in charge of a capital ship, let's say of 500 men, and I am told you know go around to the other side of the planet and bombard this city. That's an incredible lot of power. I am the voice of America, for better or worse, when I get there. What's more, I hold the power of life and death over my entire crew. I can execute someone if you know they get out of line. And to tell me that some moron with 11 other guys as dumb as him is going to get in a steel tube with a bomb on a stick and blow me up when I can't even see it coming, that's not anything that anybody wanted. War, of course, spurs a lot of submarine development because you want a way to sink those enemy ships. The Russians were experimenting with a variety of submarines to try and break the siege of Sevastopol and sink the Allied fleets, French, British, and, and uh, Turkish. So yeah, when war comes, submarine interest is spurred. No Navy, though, in peacetime, wanted to see submarines develop and exist. So, so then how does, I mean, you just touched on a little bit, but then how does Villawa now get involved? Fort Sumter is fired upon. Uh, and the Navy, I think reluctantly, but the Navy starts to think, well, maybe a, uh, well, it's not just Sumter. I, I believe it's the raising of the, uh, the uh, Merrimack, yeah. which becomes the ironclad Virginia, uh, sort of 
like you said, war changes these things, mm -hmm. uh, makes the Navy think a little bit differently. Can you talk a little bit about that? If you go back and read period newspapers, Merrimack is almost always preceded by the word monster. Yeah. It's the monster Merrimack. And the word meant the same nowadays, big and nasty. And the Navy, of course, wants to fight fire with fire. If they're going to go high-tech, we're going to go high-tech. Armor's the way to go. But even the Navy wasn't totally certain of what design was going to work best. We know Monitor, and most people assume that was it. We barely made it in time. They're still building the thing on the way south. There's also the new Ironsides and the Galena. The first of those would be very successful, but too late for the Hampton Roads battle. The latter one, the Galena, was a very bad design. I think in her first combat off Drury's Bluff, her Captain Rogers said, well, we demonstrated she's not shot-proof because she came back looking like Swiss cheese. Right. So, again, fair to middling, good and bad designs. The second plan for sinking the monster Merrimack was an Army one, by Secretary of War Stanton, which was a small squadron of iron ram ships. And the Navy wanted nothing to do with it, because that's, that's old tech, that's medieval, that's ancient, but they were tasked with it at Lincoln's order. Uh, that actually would have worked quite well, because the freeboard, or distance from the surface of the water to the top deck of Virginia, or Merrimack, was very, very small. And current thinking is that that deck might actually have been a wash, which puts her ram very, very low in the water to sink, you know, pierce an enemy ship. You could have lost the ships coming in from port and starboard to her broadside, but fore and aft, there's only one or two guns to fire at them. Those ships could have made it, and riding up over her decks could have pushed her down. It actually wasn't as crazy a plan as they think. The Navy didn't actually pay for or sponsor Villawa's sub. A month after Fort Sumter's fired upon, a couple of his men are captured at a small island in the middle of the river off Philadelphia, rather close to the Navy Yard. They're there just to get weights, lead weights, uh, to ballast her, and they're, they're taken by the harbor police because they're suspicious, and they, they tell him who the vote belongs to, Villawa, and he shows up and says, well, I had an appointment with the Navy Yard. And the Navy says, we don't know who the devil this guy is, and they throw his men in jail, you know, and arrest him, and then, you know, a day or two later, civilians come and say, this guy's been on the river for two years demonstrating the boat, maybe you ought to have a look. Well, the Navy doesn't want to have a sub, but it's like, all right, we're pretty sure ironclad's the way to go, Stanton's got this crazy plan. Let the Frenchman try it. If it works, we'll pay you for the sub. We'll pay you for a bounty you know, for sinking the ship. So, in effect, the Navy says go to it. But it would have been a civilian contracted crew, if you will, to go into combat. So, again, they, they've got their foot in the door, but they're, they're ready to pull it back in, in an instant. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> which they, which they, they do at some point, right? So, they, there's a contract that they write up with uh, some investors who back Villawa. Uh, that's a whole other story. The, the, the back and forth between Villawa and Martin Thomas is one of the investors. Uh, and, and then you've got the Navy, you've got Gideon Wells involved, and you've got Commodore Joseph Smith, who mm -hmm. is, I think, sort of overseeing this and right, the right. back and forth between Villawa, who won't deal with anybody less than, at some point, less than the secretary level, I believe, yeah, of, of yeah. the Navy. Um, let's just talk a little bit about that dynamic and the construction mm -hmm. of, of uh, the submarine. Okay, I, if you really understand, I mean, as a historian, you're usually happy when you have multiple sources. But I've had multiple sources of a, of a peacetime event that was calmly recorded. And in four eyewitness accounts, I'll have three different times and dates for the same thing. And, it's, and, and two of those are from the same guy on different days. So it can be frustrating. In this case, we had so much information. What's in the book is just as much as I had to put in, and I, I synopsized that chapter. At one point, I was gleefully going into the chapter describing the back and forth between Villawa and the government, and I must have had 40 pages. Because all I was having to do was take all the letters they wrote and say, here's this one, this one, here's this guy. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, this is making the book, book twice as big as it is, 
and I'm getting bored by it, and I'm one of the people that's enthusiastic about the story, it's going to bore other people. So if you want to understand how nitty-gritty, down-and-dirty this got, go to the website link from my author's page and go to you know, Alligator Documents. There have got to be 150 letters in telegrams back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, but basically, you're right. Villois' ego eventually gets the better of him. He will. He insists on dealing with higher and higher ranked people. <laughs> he doesn't understand how the Navy pay system works. I mean, the Navy's not cheating him of money, but you have to go through channels and wait a certain right, amount of time. Right. Uh, Villois, in the meantime, is paying people out of his own pocket. I think his money is running out because at one point the Navy goes to retrieve some air pumps his men were supposedly working on at his workshop in Delanco, New Jersey. And the person that owns that tavern or inn said, oh, no, no, I'm keeping those till he pays me. So the Navy paid him to get the pumps back. So he's running out of money everywhere. At one point, he actually skips out of town. The sub should have been ready in 40 days. That was a little optimistic in that the Navy has never built a submarine before. So setting this timeline is you know, a little hopeful. Villawa is the one that came up with that time frame, though. And the way he had a plan, fine, that probably would have worked. But again, he likes to tweak things. He improves things on the fly. He also made one out-and-out -out mistake in that the oars, which he made, because they have to go in a 360-degree arc, the lower half of that to propel the boat, the upper half to make the boat go backwards, he has a metal oar guard that prevents them from going up over the top. Oh, right. And they're literally ready to put it in the water, yep. and someone says, but what if? And they have to sheepishly pull it back and announce to the Navy, not today, maybe maybe in a week, things like that. He's also very disgusted with the workman because they just can't understand how to build what he's designed. Well, none of these guys have built a submarine before. Right. They're mm -hmm. used to having the, you know, enormous spacious innards of a large steamship to work in. Instead, they're being crammed into this little tiny tube, trying to get everything to fit and, you know, pass fore and aft and, and port and starboard and, and leave room for the crew and things like that. And it just drives them crazy. And, and it could fit up to 20, uh, 18 oarmen? There are 18 and, and, rowing benches. If okay, you go nine yeah. down either mm -hmm. side, there's a spot for the captain. There's room up front for two divers. It probably okay. would need just one, yeah. and along with two mines, or as they call them, torpedoes. So it's a very, very full ship. Right. I mean, I'm not terribly claustrophobic. I would develop that problem in about five minutes inside that yeah, boat, yeah. if I even fit. People yeah. today would find it hard to fit in this boat. You know, it's... Uh. And, and so, and again, with the pressure he's getting from the Navy, and particularly Commodore uh, Smith, it's sort of a fear that he might have had sort of comes true. The Virginia sinks a ship that his son is on uh, while yeah. they're waiting for the alligator, which isn't called alligator yet, but while they're waiting for the submarine. That was probably one of the saddest episodes in the book when, when I got to those letters and realized it, because Smith never mentions it. The tone of his letters and telegrams back and forth to Brutus never changes. He doesn't even acknowledge it or anything, and Brutus doesn't realize it either. But he knew that when, when the Cumberland was sunk, I'm sorry, Congress, when she struck her colors, he said, you know, did she surrender? And someone, one of the officers had told him, said, well, yeah, she did, but I, I imagine your son's okay. He goes, no, he's dead, he because have. he wouldn't have struck the colors if he was still alive. And Smith knew at that time, and yet he just kept on doing his job with Villawa, who at that point he probably could have strangled. It was really yeah. a good thing that Brutus is in Philadelphia, and Smith, as chief of the Bureau of, of Yards and Docks, is down in D.C., in Washington City. Um, yeah, he, he never said a word about it. And, and Villawa uh, keeps asking for things that they can't, uh, they can't even, why would he need, uh, silver would have been something that he needed, but not the amount that he asked for, right? No. So there was, there was, they were a bit leery why he needed that. There's, again, this, this was a question that one of our researchers raised who believed 
heartily that Villawa was a criminal, that he was trying to cheat the U.S. Navy. But as I pointed out in the book, there are safeguards in place. Everything he asked for, from a wrench to the silver, has to be approved by and explained to the lawyer, I mean, Martin Thomas, his, his contractor in effect. And there's no issue with that. He has to sometimes explain why I need an extra pump or an extra hydraulic jack or something like that. And he gets those things. But when it comes to the silver, as far as Thomas Martin knows and uh, the guys working on the ship in the Navy, he only needs to make a spark because he wants to explode a mine that's at the end of an insulated cord that his diver has deployed, hopefully against the side of, of Merrimack. And everyone knows at that time, to make this, you just need a 4 by 4 plate of it. It can be paper thin. Mm -hmm. And I calculated in period money, it's like for $12, you get all the silver plates you need to make a spark. Villawa is asking for about 16 one-foot square plates, a quarter, an eighth of an inch thick. An enormous amount of silver came to $2,400. And Villawa refuses to explain. He goes, you can't understand what I want to do with this. Just give me the silver. Now, he knows that he's not going to get it unless he explains. And he won't explain. And what really, what really ruins his involvement in the project is that Martin Thomas not only gets five different Navy scientists to say, look, you don't need this, here's why. He goes out and gets the equivalent of a high school textbook where it's explained how little silver he needs. And Villawa just goes ballistic. Uh, do you the, want me to explain the, what I think the silver's for or well, say that the, for later? The quote, no, uh, uh, just one second. The quote was, it would be useless to lose precious time to discuss a point that is known to me alone, how he responds to the silver. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that, that plays off what you said. One doesn't play well with others. Secondly, right. he keeps his cards close to the vest. But you have an explanation for this. I silver. have a theory, yeah, okay. not an explanation. Yeah. Again, there's yeah. a lot of open holes right. here, but there, there has to be someone in another generation or another two months maybe figure something better out, and that's fine. The idea is to spur people's thinking. I went to a couple of professors at a local college up where I live in Massachusetts, and uh, I said, look, I've, I've got this historic issue, and here's, I explained, you know, the background, and I said, I know you only need this little bit of silver to make a spark. What could you be doing with this much more silver? Because he doesn't need that big a spark. It's overkill. And they thought about it a while, and I did some more research too, double-checked with them, and Villawa might actually been trying, and the, the idea to do this was in the wind at the time. A couple of the submariners were trying it too. And I'm sorry, submariners. Uh, submariners is a cartoon character. <laughs> <laughs> I get that explained to me a lot. Um, he may have been trying to generate air, and at a rudimentary level, it's exactly what they do on the International Space Station nowadays. Villawa, in, in doing the calculations for what those plates of silver were capable of, one, he could never have kept up with the breathing rate of the crew, so he can't generate enough air. What's worse, one of the side project, products of it is also hydrogen. So that gas begins to build up instead of the oxygen as you're splitting a water molecule. But was that what he was thinking? Because there was another sub at the time. Again, everyone's using bucket and bellows or tanks of compressed air. Payern did that. Uh, it was sort of, you know, de rigueur. But in Barcelona, Spain, there's a sub about to come out in 1865, I think, or 66. Narcisse Monturiol develops a submarine, Ictinio, that can stay down so long that during one demonstration dive or test dive of duration, he came up after like oh, X number of hours, and a reporter said, why did you surface? And Narcisse says, we got bored. As in, so long as the chemical lasts and the chemical will generate enough heat to boil water and create steam for the engine, the waste product of the chemical reaction was oxygen. Mm. So he's basically down there as long as his fuel lasts. Was Villawa trying to do this as well? That's the only thing I could think of for that much silver. And if he thinks he's on the verge of creating something new and that wondrous, 
this is going to be his test case for it. He can't afford the silver himself to do it in his basement. Right, sure. You know, yeah. so the Navy, if he can get them to pay for the money, he'll wow them with the invention. They'll be impressed and happy he spent it. But whenever the Navy won't nibble at that exorbitant price, I mean, the, he he's budgeted like fifteen thousand dollars for the whole sub. You can spend up to this amount. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they spend about seven or eight thousand. Well, you know. 2400 is a big chunk to add on to that. Mm -hmm. But because they won't nibble, he's evidently willing, if my theory is correct, to take that secret to his grave and be thrown off this crowning project of his rather than share it with people that can't possibly understand it. And he does. I mean, he, does. he does. He does. Uh, so he, he leaves the project or he's removed from the project. Um, and it's a sort of abandoned for a short time until, but Martin Thomas and the investors are pretty adamant that they want the Navy to use this thing because they want to get their money back. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what happens next? I think there's a young uh, uh, man, uh, Eakins. Uh, a young, a younger man, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sam Eakins is, is uh, he enlists in the Navy, and he. this is something Villabal wanted also. He wanted a commission, and that wasn't ego. That was safety. If a civilian heading a civilian crew is in what we call yeah. a terrorist submarine is captured, you're going to get shot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If he has a commission, he's in a U.S. warship, okay, you're going to get captured instead of killed. He wanted the commission. It just never happened because of other things. But uh, Eakins has a, a, a commission. Eakins is probably the one person on the surface of the planet most highly qualified to be our first submarine commander. And it's a fluke that someone like this existed and was interested. Eakins had been an ordnance officer in the Army during the Mexican War in the 1840s stationed in Pittsburgh. So the fellow knows how to make black powder go boom. His family business is electroplating with silver, so he can use sparks to make gunpowder go boom. Makes him even more dangerous. He's also an experienced salvage diver. He worked in the mid, -late, mid to late 1850s helping a fellow from Boston named John Gowan uh, salvage the Russian fleet that had been scuttled at Sevastopol. So he can go underwater with sparks and make things go boom. This is exactly what you want in a submarine commander. Eakins is told to pull together a crew, because all of Villawa's men have left, some have enlisted, others have gone on ships, you know, merchant ships around the planet. He gets one or two of them to help him figure out how to work the boat. His crew is entirely green. They know nothing about the submarine. Eakins actually is taking out there every day just seeing how the oars work, how it dives, things like that. And then he's told, well, in two weeks, we're taking it to Virginia, get ready. This is a, no pun intended for submarine stuff, but this is a crash course. He's even testing it off Fort Monroe when it finally gets towed down there. He stays down for 45 minutes. Um, I'm not sure how happy he was with the boat. He evidently felt comfortable enough that they towed it up to City Point, where the squadron was, and they are one of 12 other ships on a mission I'm sure to this day the Navy wishes everyone would just forget about. Yeah. This is the Appomattox mm -hmm. River raid where Lincoln wanted the bridge that connects Petersburg with Richmond and along which all of Lee's supplies and reinforcements came and his wounded went out. He wants it dropped in the water. This is towards the end and of the Seven June, Days Battle. Okay, yeah, June, this is, this is 1862. June 1862. Yep. Mm -hmm. McClellan says, I'm too busy, I can't spare anybody because, you know, if there are 12 Rebs there, McClellan sees 24 and reports 36. So I, I need more men, send me men. And so Lincoln turns to the Navy and says, do this. And from, from Gideon Wells down, they all say, this is a bad idea, boss. Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But the assistant SecNav... Gus Fox goes around the local flag officer and goes to John Rogers and says, we want this done, can you do it? Rogers goes, bad idea, but yes, sir, I'll do it. He gets the entire James River squadron, including Monitor, which is yeah. the most unbelievable part. They're yeah. going to risk it on this raid. Well, Alligator, what will be Alligator, gets his name about this, this time, um, is towed up to City Point, and Rogers takes one look at her and says, how tall is the sub? You know, from the, the conning tower hatch to the keel, and Egan says, about six feet. 
Does anyone in Washington think to ask how deep the little blue line of the bridge was? It's a four-foot creek. Mm -hmm. And even though this is like high-tech, when they capture it, it ain't that high-tech. And they will just chew through my entire fleet, get it out of here. So it missed its chance with Virginia. It's now missed its chance to go in this raid, which is probably a good thing. And uh, it's towed back to the Washington Navy Yard. So it's actually the first submarine refit over that winter in a U.S. Navy Yard. Also the first one deployed to a combat zone when it went up to City Point anyway, which was still the scene of live action. But Eakins, Eakins spends the raid on board the tow ship satellite, and uh, the Navy is, is understandably a little concerned that Eakins seems to have gone AWOL because all these guys are out of touch. He dumps all the powder over the side at one point, and the Rebs come close, and then reports back, and they're like, you know, where were you? We ought to have you arrested and cashiered. And he is actually tossed off the project for a while, because now the Navy decides that we're finally going to test this thing, and that was the gating event in paying the contractors. They get Thomas Selfridge, who was an officer aboard the Cumberland the day she was sunk, and Selfridge tests it off the Washington Navy Yard and is, is not impressed, to say the least. He hates the thing. Also because submerging it is so complex, he doesn't know how, he actually almost manages to sink it at one point in time. It gets a little off balance, and his crew panics, and suddenly it starts to go down deeper and deeper by the bow, and he realizes the crew is, like, rushing towards the hatch as fast as they can crawl and clamber over each other. And he manages to calm them down, get the boat back on an even keel, and get it to shore. And, you know, basically damns the boat and says this will never work. It's terrible. It should not have been built. He also doesn't understand how to use it. Right. All right. So, so <clears throat> and then it ultimately meets its fate in 64 60 63 the boat's taken back to the navy yard yep. and the investors who still have not been paid a right. cent because now the navy's tested it and if it doesn't work they don't accept it you don't get paid anything they're out eight grand in period money uh sam eakins reappears and is reassigned to the project because the the investors say we will pay for a refit let's let's try this with a prop eakins takes out the oars which were a drag even whenever they were you know, collapsed mm -hmm. and he puts in a, a prop like hunley had it's got a staggered axle he can now have the crew to eight or nine men and double the power of of the boat so it can go up to about four or five knots now which is twice its speed the air supply will last twice as long and in the spring it's ready to be towed down to charleston mm -hmm. And Charleston, again, is, is the jewel in the crown as far as putting down a rebellion. It's where it started. And the Navy wants very much to get the service fleet in just to blast the bejesus out of Charleston and the forts. The trouble is, in the one channel that goes into Charleston from the sea, the rebels have strung a line of pilings and chains and logs and, and nets made out of chains. You can't get through it. And the fear is that the ironclads will hang up on that and just be pummeled by the forts all around it. If we can tear that away we have a clear path in. And it's tailor-made for salvage-type submarines, which mm -hmm. describes all Yankee submarines. Southern subs are hunter-killer subs. They want to sink ships. We don't care that much about enemy ships so after Merrimack. We just want to open the channels. And Egan's is supposed to go in, make that attack. On April 2nd, the tow ship gets hit by a storm in the graveyard of the Atlantic off North Carolina. The Navy didn't listen to a lot of what Villawas said, especially after he left the project, because he keeps writing plaintive letters to Gideon Wells. And uh, one thing they, they should have listened to was, don't tow it on the open sea. These things are made for harbors and rivers. It's not meant to go in the ocean at all. The fact that Hunley made it that far out into the sea as it did, that wasn't what subs were meant to do at the time. They're not ocean going. Right. Well, when the storm comes up, alligators being towed by one hook, one chalk in the nose of the boat, and it, uh, it starts yawing back and forth. When one of the tow cables snaps, now it's rolling and yawing, and the storm is so bad that Eakins is, is damaged for life. He's hit in the cheek, loses a couple molars, has nerve damage, gets hit in the kidneys. Uh, that bothers him the rest of his life. One or two of the crewmen are washed overboard, hatches are ripped off, the Sumter's gonna get 
towed down if the sub fills with water. They can't tell if it's filling with water because the plates have loosened or what. And the two captains of the tow ship, the Sumter and Eakins, together say, we're going to cut it loose, right? Yes, we are. And that's the last time alligator was actually seen. It took them a couple of days just to limp back to Washington Navy Yard and report the loss of the boat. Wow. And uh, alligator hasn't been seen since. Did she drift for miles? Did she go straight down? We don't know. And it would be tough to tough to find. I mean, it, it would. She's dealing with a large area. Very, she's near the edge of the continental yeah, shelf. Think yeah. how long we couldn't find monitor. Right. This thing's as big as missiles we fire nowadays. It's 45 feet long. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen some of the scans that the Navy got from people transiting the area. Uh, I'll give the professionals credit because when I look at them, I, I can't say, well, that's a coal ship. That's a U-boat. That's one of our subs. You know, this is a merchant ship. It's all just jumbled and, and buried and turned topsy-turvy. And, again, things dissolve and rot over time. Uh, and if it was intact, it means that it's crushed down to the size of a shoebox by the time it gets right, down that right. low. It's also very near the edge of the continental shelf. So if in going down towards the bottom, the bottom suddenly got much, much deeper, it's way down. You wouldn't recognize it right, or right. find it. Uh, what happened after the war in terms of uh, the, the Navy pretty much abandoned the idea of trying to make a submarine, correct? We had one called the Intelligent Whale, which you can still see in Seagroot, New Jersey, okay. at the New Jersey uh, National Guard Base. Um, we tested that for a couple of years, I think to about 1869, and then decided that we really didn't need them. Again, these aren't ocean-going ships yet. They mm-hmm. won't be until World War I. And so we sort of dropped the ball. The Europeans, however, had watched our war closely, and of course— Enemy harbors in Europe are a lot closer than our enemy harbors are now. Ours are all the way across the oceans, and oceans are dandy ways to stop enemy ships from coming. We focused on the high seas fleet and a little bit of harbor defense from the surface. But uh, the Europeans just went at this hammers and tongs. And that's, you know, whitehead torpedoes have been being developed, and they're being sold around the world now, and torpedo boats and submarines. The Europeans see a wonderful chance to sink enemy ships that aren't that far away. We don't get back in the game till Holland in about 1900 with the USS Holland. Right. You know, and then World War I puts submarines on the map, if you will. They're now part of the arsenal. What happened to Villawa? Villawa sort of dies in obscurity. He, uh, he tries to market a much larger sub to his native French government, and that, that plan... This is one of the, the bedeviling things or frustrating things about this whole project. Villawa's plans at first were described to me by serving sailors as these are what are called yard plans. Yard plans are where you draw a box in the bow of your submarine and say, that's a torpedo room. The guys at the yard know where to put everything in a torpedo room. There'll be another drawing on that. Well, they're actually more like marketing plans. Villawa would put in a lot of things that you look at them, it's like, that can't quite work that way, or that doesn't connect right, or that looks too fancy. He's mostly marketing to kings and queens, you know, secretary of the Navy, a bunch of financial backers. He, he wants to promote himself and impress them with how fancy this will look. I mean, this boat Which goes was, back to his early life. He gave it himself the duh in Villawa. No, no, initially. no. Actually, actually, we thought that. We thought okay. that. But for his work in Greece... He is knighted by the French right. government, and then when he gets home to France, they knight him again. Okay. We thought it was an Ellis Island trick, too. Even okay. though, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like putting Vaughn in front of your name if you're right. German. No, he is legitimately de Villois. Okay. But yes, what you said, we thought for a long right, time. Right. Um, he teaches uh, at one of the first all-black schools run by Fanny Coppin in Philadelphia. I believe he teaches math there until he dies in 1875. Okay. His wife, Eulalie... Uh, whose salient contribution to all this was perfect English and wonderful Victorian penmanship. You can read everything she writes, whereas Brutus is chicken scratching. You would never see a book if Brutus had written all those letters. She dies in 1895, survives him by 20 years, and is still recognized as a descendant of, of Villawa and an inheritor of the Girard fortune, part of it. 
where does the name Natural Genius come from? That's a, that's a cool story. <laughs> yeah. Natural Genius comes from the 1860 census. Uh, evidently, Villawa was enumerated twice. I think that the census data caught him and probably Eulalie, who's listed as an engineer when she comes over, not just an assistant, but an engineer, catches him in Delanco, New Jersey. And he, I'm sorry, Marcus Hook, Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania. And he answers everything accurately. I'm a civil engineer. He gets his age right. He gets Eulalie's right. And even though he says de Villois, the American census taker writes down D period Villois. So you know he says at least de Villois. The guy just doesn't understand what he means. At his boarding house in Philadelphia, his Irish landlady is answering for everybody, Mrs. Foy. And whenever the census taker says, well, you know, what, how old is he? She gets that wrong. She gets Eulalie wrong. She doesn't put in dust. She puts Villawa. And when asked, what does he do? She's not sure, but he's so smart. Sure, and he's a natural genius. And the guy just writes it down and goes to the next door. Natural genius, that's number 12 on the block. Great, I'll win the pool. That's where natural genius comes from. And we laughed at that. You know, we had a good chuckle when we first started researching this. And then you start realizing all the things Villawa had done. And, I mean, if natural genius isn't quite deserving, Renaissance man certainly is. Sure. And first-class engineer. Yeah, well, uh, Chuck, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, again, oh, this, is, thank you. this is a book that takes us, again, from, from France in 1794 yes. uh, to, to post-Civil War and everywhere in between. Uh, you can check out Chuck's uh, uh, website, Chuck Veet, uh, chuckveetbooks.com, Veet, V-E-I-T. Uh, this is just one of many books that Chuck's done. So please check that out. And uh, uh, again, Natural Genius, Brutus de Villois and the U.S. Navy's first Could I submarine? sneak in one sure. public service announcement yeah. real quick? Mm -hmm. If you go to the website for the books, uh, if you're interested in Civil War history, look up for a book called Upon the Best Authority. The title comes from the way a newspaper would reassure people that their their sources were accurate. I got this upon the best authority. You will read in its description a line from me that will surprise you. The line is, do not buy these books. Uh, they're they're letter-sized paper. There are four volumes of 1,672 pages. If you're a bibliophile like me, know that the books are priced as low as I can make them. I think I get a buck a book. I just want the information used. But there's also a link there to a website that is totally free where all the information exists. These are a thousand words a day from northern and southern newspapers from the beginning to the end of the Civil War. And it's not just military and naval, it is, it is social. It's a, a snapshot of how Americans saw themselves, what they reported on. It is by turns terrifying and then hilarious and there are things in there that we don't believe happened, we know didn't happen, and then you run across little hints that got another book and the rediscovery of the rocket torpedo in 1862. So read them and enjoy them. And, and so this is on your website? It's on my website, and just take the link. Again, okay. I, I'm not trying to sell the books. I'm yep. trying to give you the information for free. We'll, we'll put a Use link uh, right below the podcast. Chuck V, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nick. Appreciate it.